0: Greetings, and welcome to Research on Religion, a weekly podcast series devoted to the social scientific study of religion. I'm Anthony Gill, your host, Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington and Distinguished Senior Fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion, the gracious sponsor of our podcast. We encourage you to visit our website at www.researchonreligion.org to post comments, ask questions, Access additional material related to today's program and to find out what is happening at the Institute. All right, let's begin. When it comes to the topic of religion in China, several things come to mind. First, we may immediately associate China with its rich historical affiliation with Buddhism, Confucianism, and Taoism, faiths and philosophies that date back several millennia. Second, We may also recall Western missionary attempts to Christianize the region in the late 1800s and early 1900s. The Taiping Rebellion of the late 1800s, which plunged China into an extensive civil war and killed millions of Chinese, was inspired and led by a Christian convert who eventually saw himself as a messianic figure. And of course, in 1949, Mao Zedong and the Red Army led a successful communist revolution in the country that officially installed an atheist regime in the country and over the course of several decades, particularly during the cultural revolution of the 1960s and early 1970s, attempted to eradicate all religious thought and influence in Chinese society. Following Mao's death in 1976, a series of gradual economic and, to a lesser extent, political reforms opened up societal space for religious individuals and groups to emerge from hiding. Today, China is experiencing what some might call a religious revival Granted, the vast majority of the population still does not retain any strong links to an institutional faith, but there has been a noticeable increase in the public visibility of Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, and movements such as Falun Gong. Indeed, although Christianity claims only 4-5% to adherence in China, the country's large population of 1.4 billion people makes China one of the largest Christian nations in the world. What does this changing religious landscape mean for contemporary China? What challenges does growing religious pluralism present to the Communist Party? Is Christianity a force for democratization in the country? For economic growth, a la Weber's Protestant ethic thesis? And how are relations between church and a communist state managed in China contemporarily? To discuss these issues and many more, we are joined by Carrie Kazel, she is an assistant professor at the University of Oregon, recently receiving her PhD at Cornell University. And she is the author of her dissertation, which is called "Belief in Authoritarianism: Religious Revivals in the Local State in the Local State in Russia and China." And hopefully that'll be coming out as a book soon. I know our listeners will be interested in. It. once it is, we'll make sure that we link up to it. Uh, Carrie, welcome to Research on Religion.
1: Thank you. my pleasure to be here.
0: Now, your dissertation was uh, fascinating. I had a really great time reading it, and it, it deals with the comparative aspect of Russia and China, but we really want to focus right now on the, the Chinese aspect of it. It's a, a major country with 1.4 billion people, and so uh, what happens there has a huge impact Um, all throughout the world, so I thought the best place to start with this, and I'm a historically oriented person, so I always like to understand the contemporary times by going back to history, is to take a look at what was happening in uh, China after the communist revolution in 1949. What was the religious landscape? What did the communist regime change in, in Russia, or excuse me, in China during this period?
1: OK, great. Uh, so the, the communists come to power in 1949. And they sort of start off the bat with, with quite a tense relationship with religious groups. Um, there's no secret that they, they're buying into Marxism, that religion is the, the opiate of the masses, and they begin this long agenda of eradicating religion, trying to suppress religious beliefs, with the idea that, um, that everyday Chinese or religious adherents are sort of living within, in, in this false consciousness. and decade uh, to eradicate religion and to achieve this goal they implement a series of of decade-long campaigns really targeted at at various religious communities uh, as well as religious leaders so this means that churches, temples, mosques Across Russia or excuse me across China, are closed, um, some are destroyed, often converted to other uses uh, and and unusual uses and so you will have mosques be converted to barns which hold pigs, um, mm-hmm. or you would have churches turned into swimming pools. Um, Everyday religious believers. There was also, you know, intense campaigns to suppress religious beliefs and eradicate them. This meant that that uh, religious leaders, um, so imams, uh, pastors, Catholic priests, as well as Buddhist abbots, um, often were imprisoned. Sometimes sent to labor camps. At the extreme or the heights of these campaigns, many were killed. Uh, everyday believers were often forced to. Um, if they held true to their religious beliefs, many of them were also imprisoned, had their property confiscated by the state, um, their children perhaps were taken out of schools, and so there were some, some severe consequences for being open about your religious beliefs. The result is is those people who remained true to their religious beliefs really were driven underground.
0: That's that's interesting to see. Now, one of the things, I would get a, a feel for the religious landscape, because when we think about China, uh, we oftentimes... In the religious landscape, as I mentioned before, we think about Buddhism, we think about Confucianism, Taoism, um, some of the Eastern religions. Mm-hmm. But Islam is a presence in China as well. Now, in terms of the geography of China, um, where are we talking about? Is Islam spread throughout the country, or is it located in specific areas?
1: Sure, that's a great question. Um, in China, Islam is interesting. It's it's associated directly associated with minority groups in China. So it's considered a minority religion. Um, Geographically, it tends to be concentrated in the, the northwest of China, in Xinjiang province. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The Uyghur population are, are, are Muslims. But generally spread out across China, there are, there are many other groups, uh, minority groups, who adhere to, to Islam. Uh, the Hui population is another one. And they're concentrated all over China. And perhaps they are the most assimilated assimilated mm-hmm. group.
0: It's important because some of the conflicts that we're talking about in contemporary time actually have that geographic ethnic flavor to it. So it's interesting to know that it's it's concentrated in some areas but also spread out. And I'd say the same is true of Christianity. Christianity is pretty much spread throughout the entire country. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And there are certain regions in, in China which you have seen Christianity flourish more oh. or, or taken, um, maybe taken a deeper route. Uh, Zhejiang province is one of these on, on the coastal region, um, eastern coast of, of China. There's a very strong sort of Christian population, as well as many um, many villages in the north of China, the northeast of China. But the relig- religious landscape is incredibly diverse.
0: Right. Well, let, let's talk. I mean, I'm interested in that. that Concentration and, and talk about the the communist period and it, you know, starting in 1949 closes a lot of doors as you mentioned pushes a lot of people underground. Um, Christianity starts coming in as a missionary movement in the 1800s, correct? Correct. And it's largely hitting the coastal cities, but then moves into the the mainland areas, correct? Absolutely. Okay. Um, and and so basically missionary missionary work is shut down in 1949, but probably even before then they're facing a civil war. You know, prior to this, is that correct? Right,
1: and and many of the missionary groups, um, because of the civil war going on, as 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 well as the the war with the Japanese, they had either moved to to safer enclaves. Shanghai there was a large population mm-hmm. uh, of of missionaries, but but simply many of them actually actually left the country because it, it it was unsafe.
0: One of the things I found in my own work, which I, I found very interesting, was that a number of Protestant missionaries in Latin America were originally scheduled to go to. Um, China in the 1930s, but because of the Japanese occupation, mm-hmm. the increasing uh, danger of the zone, that a lot of them then were shipped to Costa Rica to uh, learn Spanish and then and turn around, so that's uh, rather interesting. Okay, so in, during the communist period, we have, especially during the Cultural Revolution, we have a number of uh, efforts or campaigns to push religion out of public life, and if you could give us, it, it's oftentimes difficult when movements go underground to see, you know, if they are really eradicated or if they're hidden. But what's your assessment? Did, did the amount of religious practice really decrease? Was there still a significant underground that current that was still practicing uh, different faiths? Um, what, did it vary by the type of denomination, whether it was Christianity or Islam mm-hmm. or Buddhism?
1: Well, um, as you know, China is a very diverse, you know, religiously diverse diverse country. Mm-hmm. And in my research in China, I had the opportunity to interview many of the older generation of Christians, uh, Protestants, Catholics, uh, Muslims, and asked them about their experience during the Cultural Revolution because they, many of them have lived through this or, or came from families with strong religious beliefs. And so they felt the perse- persecution really mm-hmm. firsthand. And, and the majority of the stories that I, I I heard were were very similar is that people would find small communities or small enclaves where they could worship um, in, in secret, in private. Often this was outside and so they would show up um, maybe in the rural outskirts of a city or of an urban area uh, on, on presumably farmland, and they would hold sort of impromptu worship services with one, uh, and I'm speaking of, of Protestants and Catholics, with one person sort of serving as a lookout, using things such as cowbells or flashlights as signals that somebody was coming in they need to go back to, either you know planting the field or, or, or presumably some other activity. Um, for Muslims... Uh, Muslims, they, um, ma- many Imams that I spoke to said that within families, they, they felt that they could, within the privacy of their own apartments, they felt that they could freely practice. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, among all religious communities, within the privacy of their, their home, um, they felt that they were free, free to worship in, in in ways that they saw fit. But these are some these are their views that they not they wouldn't necessarily share with, say, their colleagues at work, or they wouldn't encourage their their children to share at school because there were some negative repercussions.
0: One could only imagine the if you saying something to the wrong person, who happened to be you know with working with the party or as uh, a plant uh, there to find out to sniff out some of this stuff that uh, you know, how how dangerous that actually could be and it's it's amazing to think about how uh, religions can flourish under that type of environment but it, it is amazing that you know despite these efforts the you know, the, the movement went underground and still stayed vibrant then.
1: Absolutely. And, and the fact that I think you picked up on something, that, that it did flourish. Uh, there's been some surveys of trying to, to capture the number of, of, of Protestants, in particular in China, in 1949 after the communists come mm-hmm. to power. The government released another one in 1982. So in 1949, the, the Chinese government estimated around 700,000 Protestants. Uh, Chinese Protestants in the country. By 1982, this number increases to 3 million. So you see a significant growth despite the aggressive campaigns to eradicate religion. And many religious groups also see a growth during this period. So Catholics as well also have a growth. It's not quite as striking as the Protestants. Muslims, um, according to the Chinese government's numbers in 49, go from around 5 million to 20 million in 1982.
0: And, and that's, that's a really important date when we take 1949 to 1982 because it is the early 1980s when Deng Xiaoping finally mm-hmm. consolidates power and the society starts changing. Mao dies in 1976, but there's uh, power struggles afterwards and a lot of uncertainty about what the future is going to bring. But you know, to look at 1949 to 1982 to see 700,000 to 3 million and, I mean, I think even if you take a look at population growth during that period of time, that's still an amazing growth rate in this. And, and I, I would imagine as well that in terms of Catholicism, since Catholicism tends to be more precentric, centric mm-hmm. that they would have slower growth rates than Protestants um, and, and uh, Islam as well. So, but that's uh, absol- absolutely incredible. Um,
1: right, I, th- I think the numbers are striking, and when the, when the Chinese government released these numbers in 1982 and and more recent numbers uh, in 2007, they they suggest that actually the proportion of believers have grown haven't grown in proportion with the size of the, the Chinese population. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to downplay, downplay this yeah. this this
0: growth. Um, well, let me ask you. This, this is a social scientific question, um, but you mentioned that they they did this survey again in 1982, and again this is still early in Deng's uh, reform period. How, I mean, how good do you think that data is? How good do you think they're, are they underestimating? Do they have any incentive to underestimate? Are they overestimating? Do they have incentives to do that?
1: My sense is that they have, they're have they underestimating, mm-hmm. and they do have a strong sort of political agenda to underestimate, um, simply because, I mean, part of their, their policy on religion for decades was that religion would eventually fade away, that, that the state, people would embrace Marxist, Leninist, Maoist ideology rather than religion. Right. And so they would see sort of the false, falseness of religion. What they find, that, however, is actually the opposite, that by pushing religious groups underground and suppressing religious beliefs, I think that, in fact, it, it maybe makes them stronger and the religious groups grow underground, which is problematic for any regime, particularly an authoritarian regime, which is an atheist state. So in 1982, they have a real shift, I think, in thinking of wanting religious groups, okay, allowing greater space for religious expression with the idea of having them being above ground so that the state could monitor them perhaps Uh, a little better.
0: That's that's absolutely fascinating that you say. I want to pull up uh, or uh, move forward on that point um, as we talk here. But there's an aside, and this is a certain theme that I see with a lot of uh, movements, is that and I've seen this as well in my own work in Mexico, where Mexico made the Catholic Church illegal mm-hmm. um, constitutionally in 1917 and then uh, it enacted that in the 1920s. But when you push a, a religious movement underground, it, it still does flourish. You can't entirely eradicate it. And in fact, you you make more martyrs or you there's a certain aspect of religion that... that you know, requires martyrs or the martyrdom and, and people look around and say, Wow, it's it's amazing that despite all this repression, these people are still going to the countryside and they have their cowbells as warning signals and still practicing. There really must be something to this. And and what you say now is fascinating. So let's let's pick up the story in nineteen eighty two that they realize, well, okay, the the opiate of the masses hasn't faded away like we thought it would. So what is the thinking in um 19, the early 1980s and, and what changes occur? Are there any specific laws or anything sure. that the, the government enacts?
1: So 19, the 1980s are, are a very interesting time in China. Deng Xiaoping has, has come to power and really consolidated power, and he has a very different vision than, than Chairman Mao's vision for the future of China. It's a much more open China, uh, a much more Um, focused on the market economy, developing China's economy. He introduces, which is called the opening, um, the open door policy, the opening and -hmm. reform period. What this means in terms of religious groups is that in 1982, you have a shift in state policy. You have an introduction of something called Document 19, which identifies five official religions in China. And what
0: five are those?
1: Buddhism, Taoism or Taoism, Islam, Protestantism and Catholicism. So these are the five official or legal uh, religions, protected religions. If you fall out of these five religions, say you're um, a Chinese Jew, there's a small community of mm-hmm. Chinese Jews, you're officially not protected by the state. So you are therefore illegal. So these are the, it, it's a very perhaps narrow understanding of religion, but the state recognizes only five official religions.
0: And let me, let's slingshot that up, up a little bit to the, the present. Is that, still the current law today in China. Right.
1: So it's it's the basis of, of the religious policy there. Of okay. course, there have been some adaptations over time and clarifications, but these are the still five official religions. And so religious groups, so folk religion, popular religion, um, Hinduism, world, you know, large world religions, these um, don't have the same type of legal rights in China. In fact, they have very few legal rights.
0: Well, I, I think a number of our listeners will be familiar with uh, Falun Gong. Mm-hmm. And... Um, where would that fall in in terms of this official religion? That's received, especially about five, six, seven years ago, received a lot of press about repression, and, and they've made uh, amazing uh, presentations in in China, where just peaceful gatherings of you know thousands of these folks, and nonetheless have suffered some persecution. So where do they fit in that official religion? Right. So th-
1: they wouldn't be classified among one of the five. Five official religious groups. Falun Gong is is an interesting interesting community in that it it draws from some aspects of Buddhism, some aspects of Taoism, um, but it ties more directly into this long tradition of Qigong in China, which mm-hmm. is is sort of ancient meditation breathing exercises, somewhat akin to Tai Chi or yoga, but there's a there's a heavy dose of mysticism, and in the 1980s um, and in the 1990s in China, you see this revival of Qigong. Um, And in part, it's encouraged by the Chinese government and was encouraged even by Chairman Mao as this is an alternative to Western medicine. So often people are meditating in the morning and meditating in the evening, and they see positive effects for their health and breathing exercise. You can imagine if you're doing two hours of yoga every day, you're going to see some positive impact. Um, So... Chairman Mao actually had advocated this as an alternative to Western medicine, and in the 80s and 90s, you see it's called Qigong, fever Qigong, zhe in mm-hmm. ch- in China, and people are really um, sort of tapping into this this sort of new wave, new age, new wave um, type of of, of the meditation, but also something that taps directly into sort of a long tradition of Chinese culture.
0: And let me, you know, I have, I have two. Avenues I want to go down here. One, I want to know what it means to be an official religion. But I'm fascinated by this issue of Falun Gong. It becomes a major concern for the regime. And I, if you could offer your thoughts on that, because as you mentioned, it's you know like two hours of yoga, sure. and I, how could that be threatening to a government? I, you know, people gather and they breathe and stretch, and okay, what so what?
1: Absolutely, um, it's it's interesting. Um, so Falun Gong uh, started out. You know, it it starts out as um, as a Qigong movement and and grows rapidly um, in China. They they claim adherence. At, at one point, they claimed uh, something 15 to 20 million wow. um, adherents um, or practitioners within China. And I think what is, what is so threatening for the state is that they became politically active. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in the summer of 1999, you have a Falun Gong practitioners, s- some 10,000 odd practitioners traveling to Beijing and staging a protest in front of Zhongnanhai, which is essentially the, the headquarters and the residences of the highest ranking officials in the Chinese Communist Party. So it, it's a compound, it's a gated compound in the heart of Beijing. And Falun Gong practitioners stage uh, a sunrise to sunset pro- silent protest asking for greater religious freedom there had been um greater religious uh, 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 there there had been some articles newspaper articles published in a local newspaper in the northeast where uh, local government had been denouncing this group calling the leader a charlatan saying that he's duping uh duping the adherents he's mm-hmm. asking them for money that this is bordering on cult like behavior um and warning that people shouldn't follow it particularly warning young people not to follow follow this group. Mm-hmm. So in reaction to this and, and a series of other events, uh, Falun Gong organized quite an extensive protest. So if you think back to the summer of, of 1999, this is 10 years following the student protest, the Tiananmen Square protest in 1989, almost 10 years An an anniversary, so it's it's a it's a sensitive time in China. Um, Tiananmen Square is closed, conveniently closed this summer because the government is repaving it, um, which happens to fall on the anniversary of the student uprisings. Right,
0: so very very sensitive, right? It's it's
1: a sensitive time, and to protest in China, uh, it is still an authoritarian regime. So this is it's a very political statement. Um, and other arguments people are suggesting is the extent of this group uh, um, as well as the leadership of it really threatened the Communist Party because rather than being concentrated in one region, Falun Gong was attractive to, from, to migrant workers to well, uh, as well as members of the Communist Party, high-ranking officials in the military. So it really cut across various different classes, mm-hmm. um, cleavages. And this was, you know, there's, there's obviously the, the idea that they could mobilize if they can mobilize 10,000 people in front of, uh, you know, Zhongnanhai government headquarters and stage a protest, which presumably the Public Security Bureau didn't really know much about. Wow. Yeah. Uh, before this, this was, it was sort of a big shock of who are these people, what do they want, and why didn't we know about them um,
0: in it, the first place? It's absolutely amazing that, that it can have that impact. Again, I'm going to draw a parallel to what I know. More is, is Mexico when um, the Pope uh, John Paul II came in 1979, and there was no advertisements. They well, people knew he was coming, but they didn't announce it. They didn't make plans for this, and he drew millions of people into the streets. And the regime looks at mm-hmm. this and says, "Wow, you know, how could how could this religious figure, this religious movement, have this much mobilization when we're facing some challenges in our own party, just bringing people out to you know mobilize for our party?" So I can I can imagine how it's it's not underneath the, the rubric of official control, and that can be rather upsetting to an authoritarian regime. Absolutely. Um, and so let's bring that back, that sure. the official rubric. And you go back to document 19. Mm-hmm. or excuse, Yes, it was document, document 19. 19. And you said there are five official religions. Well, what does it mean to be an official religion in China? What does that entail? Do you have to uh, apply for this? And what goodies or benefits do you get right. from this?
1: So one of the interesting things about the, the five official religions is that they're all affiliated with um, these institutions called religious patriotic associations. Each of the five religions has this sort of bureaucratic agency attached to it. So you have the the Buddhist Patriotic Association, the Taoist Patriotic Association. And these large institutions essentially act as a liaison between the various religious communities as well as the state. Um, some, some scholars argue that they're, the, these patriotic associations are, are really agents of the state, that they're trying to push this agenda of eradicating religion. But, but my sense is that um, there, there's a lot of diversity. Some of the patriotic associations and the leadership um, of the uh, of these associations have quite good relationships with the various religious communities.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I could see how this works, say, with the Catholic Church, a rather hierarchical institution. You form your patriotic association. We're going to appoint a cardinal or an archbishop mm-hmm. or somebody to head this, and the, the lines of hierarchy are very clear. But, but say for very decentralized religions like Protestantism or Islam, I mean, how does this work?
1: Right. Well, it, it's interesting. So the Protestants in China, uh, the patriotic association... Um, the Protestants in China are all non-denominational, and this was something that was instituted uh, under Chairman Mao, and the idea was that that it, it's the Chinese Church, and it's a non-denominational, non-deno- unified Church, uh, often called the the Three Self Patriotic Movement or Three Self Church, which means that it's self-governed. The idea that foreign missionaries shouldn't have any influence or foreign governments over over the Protestant and Church. And I, I assume
0: that's an important regulation, right? right.
1: Um, that it's it's self-propagated. That this is an indigenous movement. This, mm-hmm. These are Chinese um, Chinese Christians supporting Christianity again, not foreigners, and and that it's it's self-supported. So the money is coming from within China, not uh, foreign religious organizations or governments who may have their own political agenda. So it, it makes a, a, somewhat of an interesting dynamic as, it, as you have the, the Protestant Patriarch, Patriotic Association, which is over this umbrella organization which oversees all Protestant churches in China, which means that it, if I want to expand my church or build um, build another church in a, you know, in a neighboring village, I'm going to need to go through the Religious Patriotic Association affiliated with my religion in order to expand. They are the ones I need their approval to help navigate the rest mm-hmm. of the process.
0: That's interesting. And how does that work with uh, Islam as well? I mean, is it the same kind of thing has to be, you know, self propagating self funding right, self-funding, et right. The,
1: the same the, the same uh, same general principles that these okay. are these are religious movements within China and they should be funded and organized and governed internally with, within China and so it, it plays out in in, in various dimensions um, the Muslim Patriotic Association one of my interviews revealed is that they are also in charge of um, I guess, disseminating where the, the different religious leaders will go to, mm-hmm. uh, which, which mosque they will be in charge of, right. or which mosques they will cover, because often there's a shortage of, of religious leaders, and so um, they were, they're sort of your work unit. You, they're in charge of telling you where you'll be situated after you, you finish a religious education.
0: Now, one of the you, you talk about these patriotic leagues, mm-hmm. and, and the document 19 is what we would call a national policy, uh, or here in the United States, think of it as a federal policy. Um, but one of the things that I was fascinated about your dissertation work was that you mentioned that document document 19, even though setting up the five specific religions, is still pretty vague, Absolutely. and most of the politicking about what, you know, whether a church can build here or who should staff the church really goes on at the local level. So could, if let us know a little bit about that dynamic between the federal or the national level and the local level. Where's sure. the politics?
1: So the way that um, religious policy is very centralized in China, everything coming down from the center, such as document 19, and then it's up to local government officials to implement these policies. So document 19 may say something, you know, there are five official or normal religions. Religious groups that fall outside uh, of these five official religions are illegal. And so a local government official may say, well, we have a, a small temple, which is, not Buddhist and not really Taoist. It's supporting a local god. What do we do with it? The, mm-hmm. the document doesn't say. It, it doesn't clarify specifically of what you do with religious groups, for instance, that fall outside uh, outside of this rubric or of five official religions. So there's quite a quite a lot of ambiguity mm-hmm. for local government officials to implement policies in perhaps. Uh, ways that may be more supportive of religious groups but also more suppressive. So I, the point is is that there's a lot of room to move once you get down to this
0: very sort of local level. And so there is, in your research did you notice a lot of variation in application? Are there some places or some towns or regions of the country that are much more repressive or less willing to mm-hmm. grant religious groups certain rights but other places that's wide open?
1: Um, what I found is, is that not so much in terms of that, that some regions are more repressive, mm-hmm. but that some local governments are much more creative in their treatment of mm-hmm. religious communities. Uh, so, so, for instance, um, in, some, in some regions you would have local governments, for instance, they're dealing with a religious community that might fall out of these five official religious groups. And they're not quite sure how to manage this group um, most people living in their area believe in it or support it, and so to shut it down would have negative repercussions for them. Not mm-hmm. that they'll be voted out, out of office, but they still want to maintain sort of stability, and they want some sort—they of, have some sort of accountability right. with people um, living in their region, um, and so they've interpreted these policies in ways of they've labeled religious. Temples as cultural temples, um, called them, identified them as museums or places of tourism. So they take them out of the religious context. Now, by all purposes, it's still very much a temple. People go there and offer incense um, mm-hmm. and worship in the way that they have been doing for the last you know, hundred or th- even thousands of years. But the local government, they're sort of navigating around the strict religious policies and. Identifying these places as museums, mm-hmm. which takes it out of the somewhat sensitive area of religion. And then they're able to even extract a little bit of money from them. So mm-hmm. they're, they're getting a cut from, from the museum as well.
0: Interesting. Um, so t- tell us more about this, the local level of, of policymaking um, here. You, you talk about um, in the, uh, the dissertation how religious relations with official groups, and we're talking official groups here, we might talk a little bit about um, the black market sure. religions a little later on, but with official groups tend to be much more cooperative than conflictual. And one wouldn't necessarily think that in an authoritarian regime there would be some tension between you know, a, a government that is trying mm-hmm. to regulate and bring these groups out of the shadows and control them and tell them where they can build. But you know, what did you find in relation to you know, church-state conflict versus church-state cooperation?
1: That's uh, a great question. I was uh, what I found was actually something I, I wasn't expecting. So I went into the project expecting to find various religious communities which are being suppressed by local governments and different. I, I expected to find. I was looking for ways that local governments are controlling, managing, suppressing religious mm-hmm. groups. What I found is is at the the local level, and in China, I was dealing with district level governments. So within cities, smaller districts, okay. and what I found is that. At at this level, there's uh, there's quite a lot of cooperation and, and even collaboration, particularly around material concerns. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the explanation for this is that once you get to this local level, these these local government officials, they're dealing with pretty constrained or strapped budgets. Right. You know, one of one of the implications of the opening and reform period as China opens itself up to capitalism and, and liberalizes is that the, the country becomes more decentralized and more fragmented, which means the lower you go down um, within the, the sort of political spectrum is the more local government officials have to be self-reliant. Mm-hmm. So they are... Their budgets are based on collecting taxes within their locale. The center is not doling out as much money as as it used to, and so they're they're in this interesting position is is where they're 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 dealing with s- severe, so- somewhat economic constraints. Mm-hmm. Um, religious groups, why, collab- wh- why they're trying to align with the state, especially the five official religious groups. Again, I didn't expect this because of the long history of religious suppression, these sort of decade-long campaigns to eragi- at- eradicate religious groups. I expected to find quite a bit of animosity. And what I found instead is that religious groups see especially local government officials as somewhat of their allies particularly because the local government officials are the gatekeepers of religious right. policy. So if they want to build a new church or expand their mosque or, or build um, a seminary to train Catholic priests, they're going to first have to get permission from local government officials. These are the people with the, the power and the resources. So it is in their interest to have good relationships, cooperative relationships with these, these communities. On top of that, the local government officials also do have quite a bit of uh, they have more money than religious communities and so right. that they can grant a religious um, they, uh, they, they can offer a religious religious group such, such as a Buddhist temple. they can give it a status, call it a cultural relic or historical relic, which means that it will money will be directed to it to help with repairs. Um,
0: and and, and that can be entirely beneficial if that if you have to raise money yourself, uh, if you have to be self-propagating and your church is falling apart and you're just not, you don't have the money to do that from your exactly. local members. Hey, make this a museum. We still use it and the government funds it. Wow, pro- you know, uh, the the janitation problem solved, I guess. Right. right? It's, it's really a,
1: a win-win situation. Mm-hmm. Many of these religious communities explain to me this is a win-win situation because... The property that they inherited in the 1980s, or which was given back to them, was in a pretty sorry state. I mean, dilapidated churches and temples and mosques, if they were still even standing. Often it was the case they were given a a parcel of land, which was likely close to where their original religious structure was, and said, you know, you have the land, now good luck, go ahead and build that (laughs) temple. And, you know, many Chinese believers, they don't have quite as as deep of pockets um, as, as many other countries. And so there wasn't a lot of money to help rebuild these extensive temples and mosques
0: well, me, uh, two interesting points you, you bring up here one um, I mean this goes back mm-hmm. to the communist period I assume all religious property was just made property of the state Absolutely. And as you say in the early 1980s um, with changes in policy there you know here you go here, here it's back again and so it's not um, that big but but the other thing he says well some Chinese believers don't have deep pockets is is the new religious growth in China largely amongst the poor? Is it a middle class thing? Is it upper elite? Is it spread throughout? What's the, the demographic characteristics of it?
1: That's, it's a great question. And unfortunately, the, the type of data, you know, survey data, those right. are closely guarded se- secrets by the yeah, state. So yeah. I haven't seen um, anything sort of a, a, of a cross-section of China. But, but my sense is, is from, from spending quite a bit of time in mosques and temples and, and, and churches, is it still is attracting um, perhaps a poorer class Mm-hmm. Um, sort of a, a less wealthy Chinese with some exceptions, generally women, more women than oh. men uh, very, across is there, religions, which is, yeah. I think is common in, in...
0: Sociology, religion predicts that women tend to be more active in church, and that's the, how they bring the men in and such. So Absolutely. Very consistent with findings in, in um, other parts of the world.
1: But there have been some some interesting I, I guess interesting discoveries that some scholars have been working on is is looking at particularly Protestantism as attracting a sort of a young, vibrant middle class, mm-hmm. uh, an educated middle class, and in part, in, I think in, in particularly in the '90s, Protestantism was seen as as Western, therefore mm-hmm. modern, urban, uh, and it, it became very attractive in, in many urban settings to to reach out to these the, sort of the the growing middle class uh, right. of China, many were attracted to Protestantism. Let me let me throw out a
0: hypothesis here, and I, I again I know very little about China, so I'm just advancing this. I'd like to get your thoughts on this. But it, could this be a reaction to the uh, clampdown after the Tiananmen Square massacre mm. or the Tiananmen Square incident, as it's called, um, where you know students in 1989 thinking that there's an opening and you know want to express greater political freedom. That's shut down. Is this? Do you see some um, of these younger middle-class students who have these aspirations for greater political openness? Are, are they moving into these Protestant churches? Do you think that that's part of the story?
1: That's hmm. a it's a it's a good question. I haven't thought of it in terms of is 1989 the the student incident or the student um, Tiananmen Square incident a catalyst for right. for any particular religion? I think what. What it does more is sort of discount, to the extent that people know about it because the, it's been pretty much wiped clean from, from most media sources um, within China, is that it, it helped to really discredit... Discredit the party. I'm mm-hmm. not. I would. I wouldn't go so far as to, to say that it pushed groups toward right. toward religion. What I do know is, speaking to many religious communities, particularly the underground house churches in China, is that 1989, following 1989, things were very difficult for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the country was was essentially in lockdown, and any groups which would be seen as potentially threatening, which be any of the unofficial churches or or house churches or family churches, um, were they, they felt the regulation, you know, the watching of the state in, in ways that they hadn't yeah. in the early 80s. The,
0: the reason I, I bring that up, and again, you know, trying to draw parallels with other parts of the world, I know, say, we just had an interview with uh, James Felak on um, the Catholic Church in Poland during the Communist regime, and a lot of protesters who wanted uh, freedom from Soviet intervention found themselves moving into the church. That provided mm-hmm. them political space. Um, to go there. And in authoritarian regimes in Latin America, you see a similar movement, as you can't have a, a secular political protest movement, but you find some space in the church here. And so, would be an, it, again, part of this program is not only to, to give answers to things, but to find interesting questions for future research projects. And one would wonder if there's a similar dynamic um, that is at work there. You bring up these these house churches, mm-hmm. and and so that takes me into another question I wanted to ask, which was the unofficial or quasi official churches. how does the the government deal with these house churches what are what actually are these house churches? Sure. are they official are they they're just somebody meeting here? Does the government know about them? Obviously we do because we're talking about it so tell us a little bit about those
1: okay um- the house churches, they're often called family churches or the underground churches in China, are largely Protestant groups, although there are Catholics as well, um, which are part of their own underground Catholic movement. And it's a very eclectic and diverse group of, of believers. People often talk about the house church movement, but I want to sort of steer away from the term of movement is, okay. is because there's, there's no one leader or one church leading these underground house churches. There are hundreds, of, of house churches, perhaps even thousands or, or, or maybe even millions. Some of the, the churches are, are quite large. Uh, I met with, um, they call themselves uncles, which is a sort of a leadership council of, of one house church in China, and they claim a membership of, of between one and two million wow. believers. And they have quite an extensive network in each of the provinces in China. They have mission centers where they um, they conduct services, but they also train missionaries to go out to more rural regions uh, to attract followers. The, this house church I, I'm, I'm speaking of in particular also have missionaries in the Middle East. And so mm-hmm. they're not just proselytizing within China, but they also see their mission as extending beyond China. So it, it's, it's wow. a very extensive it's a very extensive network.
0: I, I, one would not expect that. I mean, I'm just trying to envision how you have house churches in China sending out missionaries to the Middle East. I mean, right. That's...
1: So they go to the Middle East under the auspices of business, and, uh-huh. but they, they have this other agenda, which is to um, introduce their church um, okay. to, to folks living in the Middle East.
0: And, and despite the fact that official churches are not supposed to have any missionary contacts, supposed to be self gang and self-funding. You know, is there any outside contact for any of these house churches? Do they, I mean, are they? I, you know, you give them credit where credit's due. They probably are self-sustaining and uh, self-activating. But is there any outside mm-hmm. influence that comes in there?
1: Absolutely, uh, but but again, I want to stress it. It's very diverse, and right. so some of the house the house church that I was just mentioning um, is very much an indigenous Chinese church. Um, the origins, the the leadership council. Is, is all Chinese, um, but they do have connections with, with foreign missionaries who help them, assist them in times, um, often sometimes financially giving them computers or, or helping them um, bring in s- sometimes material, which might be difficult for them to find in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but some of the house church thinking of, of of this spectrum of house churches, some of them have quite good relations with foreign missionaries. Mm-hmm. Um, see them as as sort of allies, uh, helping them build their church or Chinese church. Many of them c- would prefer to keep missionaries sort of at at a, at a arm's length. Right. The idea that. They want this to be a Chinese church movement, sort of very similar ideas to mm-hmm. the, the Three Self Patriotic Movement. It's not that they, they see the foreign missionaries as their enemies, but they just they believe that they, they want to be in charge of directing right. the Chinese church, and they have a better idea of where it should be going. And um, I heard stories of, of missionaries, you know, coming in in the past and having their own sort of agenda of what how they think um, these churches should be built, and it actually not being the best. Best solution for right. for for China, yeah, and
0: local knowledge, right? Often the tends local to knowledge, be the best um, knowledge.
1: Um, but uh, and another interesting thing about uh, about the house churches in China is some of them actually have quite good relations with the official churches, and so mm-hmm. you'll have pastors at official churches, often holding services or Bible studies at unofficial churches, and so there's some, some somewhat of an exchange between there's often an exchange and um, between official churches and unofficial churches. Uh, believers worship freely in both. Uh, mm-hmm. So sometimes they prefer to go to a, a, a church with you know, 5,000 people, mm-hmm. the official state-sanctioned church. And other times they want a more intimate setting, which is you know, 15 to 20 people mm-hmm. in an apartment
0: building. And I guess that kind of gets me to the, the next question I want to ask on that is how do, they, how do these house churches, um, which might not have full official status, um, get along with local government officials? I imagine there's a great deal of vari- uh, variability there. Absolutely. But
1: I think there's there's quite a bit of a variation in in China, um, and I, I think the the relationship is actually improving generally in, mm-hmm. in China. Um, when ha- the house church movement was really flourishing in the '90s, uh, there were quite a bit of stories um, coming out in, in in China as well as the Western press about suppression of of, of house churches, uh, people being imprisoned. My sense, and 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 speaking to people involved in the house church. Um, movement in China is that relations are gradually improving. Um, with the caveat is so long as house churches keep their groups small. So 30 people meeting together in, a, in an apartment and holding services on a Sunday or a Wednesday afternoon is not a problem. Right. The local government, they may send someone from the Public Security Bureau to just sit in on one of the services, mm. make sure nothing, I guess, illegal or suspicious is going on, mm-hmm. make sure that this is a bona fide Christian house church rather than sort of an underground cult which is trying to swindle money away from from the people participating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the unwritten rule that many, many leaders of house churches told me is so long as the individual churches remain very small, these family churches... Perhaps I think 30 was the magic number I heard over and over. Mm-hmm. If you keep your congregation under 30, um, you'll have very few problems with mm-hmm. the local um, the local government. They may occasionally visit you and ask for even uh, names of people involved, but um, most religious leaders aren't very forthcoming and saying, you know, if you want to attend our services, they, w- they would welcome. Right. Um, and I heard quite a few stories of house churches converting public security members who, wow. were, who were sent there... Um, uh, to observe their their mm-hmm. services at the end, they were actually converted.
0: Wow! I mean that that's, that's, that's another ap- absolutely fascinating um, aspect of your your dissertation topic is the issue of this religious revival or this you know growing house church movement or more people moving into official churches uh, and its its role or impact in changing Chinese mm-hmm. society. And you know, we have about fifteen minutes left, and so I, I want to get into that and. It, one of the uh, um, conclusions of your dissertation I find um, fascinating is you say that although emerging religious robustness um, is becoming a force in, in China, it's not necessarily a force for democratization. And tell us a little bit about that. Why you, you, one would think that religious minorities would be lobbying for greater religious freedom mm-hmm. and that has an impact on democracy. This would, you know, possibly like in Poland, this would become... A in organizing space for people who want greater political freedoms, but what is what is the situation in China? Hmm.
1: I, I think to, to answer your question is why I don't see religious groups in China sort of pushing for for democratization or, or or chipping away at the authority of the regime is that at this point in China the relationship, particularly at the local level, is is very collaborative because religious groups. Realize that the state is essentially the right. only game in town. That they need to go through the state in order to achieve their or meet their own spiritual goals. Right. They're not political organizations. They see themselves um, very much as apolitical organizations. They're interested in um, in their own spiritual. Th-
0: that's one thing that's really hard for us as political scientists to to get a handle on. In that. Um, when when you're in the profession of political science, you want to see everything through a political lens. Right. But, you know, churches, they're there to worship God and, you know, for spiritual reasons, right? And so, as, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the collaborative nature is that it might be a survival tactic. That's where the research uh, resources are. And so, yeah, I mean... We out here in the West might, or as political scientists might, have this vision: it's, oh, this is going to be a great democratization <laughs> movement. But you know, for those folks on the ground, that's not what it's about.
1: Right. It, it's not about. Um, it's not about t- democratizing China. Um, it's about their own religious beliefs and expanding perhaps their their religious right. community, but also doing so in a way that they can show the state that they're not a threat. They're not there to undermine the authority um, of the regime. And I think you can really see this coming out in, in some of the house. Churches churches is there's been a a growing movement in China, I would say, in the last five years of house churches approaching local governments and asking them to register. So they want to become legal churches and register directly with the local government. They don't want to go through the official... Three self-patriotic movement church. They see this as um uh, as not necessarily an authentic church. Right. Uh, so they don't want to. They don't want to g- deal with with the official church. They want to deal directly with the government and say we are an independent church. And uh, there are stories of of local governments experimenting across China, mm-hmm. trying experimenting in registering house churches. And and many of these house churches, the experiments have been so successful that they've actually built their own built their own churches, so rather than having this sort of um, vagabond lifestyle of changing apartments every few weeks, they actually have a meeting place to go to, and, and they're registered. with the it's, it's all above board, and so there is a, a gradual movement uh, in this direction.
0: So it sounds like it's a, a grassroots movement almost changing Document 19 de facto. Right. There isn't just one official Protestant Patriotic League anymore. There's, oh yeah, you, you can kind of fit into that. Absolutely. You know, well. and, and
1: part of it is a, is the initiative of local government officials realizing that this is the reality of the religious landscape. And if we're going to, to make it work, then we need to be a, perhaps a bit more flexible than the official policies mm-hmm. allow. And And I, th- I think it's a very interesting chi- time in China, especially in religion, church and state relations, as these sort of new models are developing across China. And, and if they are successful, um, there's a tendency of China of picking up the models and, and adopting them in, in other regions. Mm-hmm. And so this might be one way that the Chinese state is going.
0: In many ways, I mean, it's these slow, gradual changes that might have some impact, uh, you know, down the line a decade or two, you know, hence. And, you know, as political scientists, we, you know, should be watching this kind of thing. We should maybe not get expectations for rapid change too high, but it's oftentimes these little changes which can make big difference over time. Right.
1: I I wanted to go back to to the point you said about how... um, why these groups are not a force for democratization, okay. Why, particularly Protestants. And I had some very interesting interaction with, with members of the house churches, especially the leadership of various house churches and large churches, so which claim millions, millions of members across China. And when speaking to, to one of the uncles, I, I was asking him about his network and, and saying, you know, if you picked up the phone, could you mobilize people like Falun Gong? Could you mobilize 10,000 people at the end of the week to be in Tiananmen Square and to mm-hmm. hold a protest for, say, greater religious freedom or registration or house churches. And, and he sort of smiled sheepishly and said, absolutely. I could. Wow. They would be there tomorrow. I could easily mobilize 10,000 people. The point is, I have no interest in doing that. I'm very pro-China. So mm-hmm. they may not ne- actually like the regime in power, but they are very patriotic. There's a mm-hmm. sense of love of China. Um, and and this was actually leading. This interview took place leading up to the Olympics, and they were very excited about right. the Olympics and how this is a way that shows China coming out on sort of the national stage to the world of that it is it is a diverse place, but also a place where there is religious freedom.
0: That, that that's absolutely fascinating. I mean, again, this might be a you know a new model for emergence of change in China. That's it's you know we we think of conflict with the regime, or well, you know, I don't like the regime, and so there's a, a stark line between. You know, the protest movement and the government and that, but this seems to be blurring the lines and and creating new types of grassroots activism with pride in country and. You know, willingness to work within the regime, and the regime seems to be continually changing.
1: And this uh, this individual that I, this minister that I spoke to, he actually, you know, had been on the receiving end of of some pretty harsh treatment by the regime at various points in mm-hmm. in his life. I mean, he had been in and out of prison for um, for m- organizing and mobil- uh, mobilizing mm-hmm. house churches in the past, and so it, it's not that he was sort of a lapdog uh, of the state. He had received some really severe punishments and his family had, you know, they were sort of on the move as well because they um, feared local, various local government officials. Right. But nevertheless, they, he still had a very positive impression of, of China in general. And, and he he realized that to mobilize 10,000 people in Tiananmen Square would be disastrous for, right. for his church and for Christians in, in China right. as well.
0: Right. You mentioned that he had been treated poorly. I mean, we're we're talking about the opening up of the religious marketplace and the the political economy of religion, but persecution still does occur absolutely right and, right um,
1: right. I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture um, of China. it's very much an authoritarian regime, and while there is space for religious expression um it's it's still very closely right. monitored and so if you want to worship in one of the five official religions within inside the boundaries of their 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 buildings, that's fine. They're, the state is not interested in monitoring or controlling very much what's going on with inside churches or mosques or temples. Um, if you, you would want to hold a tent revival on a street or show a, a, a movie about the resurrection of Christ, mm-hmm. that's probably not going to happen. Right,
0: right. So there's limits on on this. Do you, Absolutely, do you see the situation? Getting better, worse, staying the same over let's say asking you to speculate here for the next five years. We won't come back and check it at all. I know as political scientists I often tell my graduate students, don't don't make any predictions about the future because you know guaranteed you'll be proved wrong. But but go ahead and do that.
1: Okay. <laughs> um, I, my sense is that I, I, I am cautiously optimistic about mm-hmm. religion and state relations in China. I think the state is is adapting and being much more inclusive of religious groups. They're realizing that they have to deal with these religious communities in, in some way or another, and by suppressing them and pushing them underground, strategies of the past actually were not were not effective. Right. Um, and as China opens up more to the world, there's also pressure for China to create greater space for religious expression. One thing that, that surprised me in my research of, of meeting with religious groups, religious communities from various religions, is that they all express that this is the the best it's been for religious freedom mm-hmm. in, in China, perhaps in in their lifetime, they, they 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 spoke of it as this golden age where they had the most religious freedom, where they felt the most religious freedom. It doesn't mean though that it's a completely open or unregulated um, right. religious marketplace. That the state is still very interested in monitoring and religious communities and. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly religious communities, which are on the border regions, um, mm. and maybe align with an ethnic minority, so the Uyghurs in Xinjiang or the Buddhists in Tibet, um, they have a much more difficult time than the places that I was studying in my in my project.
0: Yeah. Where and, and in those areas, uh, the Uyghurs or the in Tibet, I mean, there's elements of separatist movements there, Absolutely. which overlays a, com- a completely different issue. Um, you know, separate from religious freedom. Religious freedom, you know, blends into the the issues there, but, I mean, I can only imagine that the issue of separation, oh, you're going to lose some territory um, or lose control over the territory becomes a great deal uh, more concerning to the regime.
1: Right, and so, I mean, the the project that I'm looking at is, is looking at local... Religious and state relations, but not in these extremely sensitive, right. insensitive regions. And I, I wouldn't expect to find any any kind of cooperation or collaboration there. I, I suspect it's a much, much more restrictive environment and, and tense.
0: Yeah, different. You know, different topic for a different time. Sure. I guess one with um, one other point that I wanted to come back to on your dissertation, um, your research that you had here. Um, you mentioned that religious groups are playing an important role in the political economy of China. Tell us a little bit about that. That was an interesting chapter.
1: Sure. Um, One of the things I I, I found when talking about cooperation and collaboration between religious groups and local governments is that much of their interaction really deals around material concerns. Uh, So I mentioned a little bit earlier about Uh, this cooperation or collaboration around issues of terrorism, or Mm -hmm. sorry, not terrorism, uh, tourism. Tourism. (laughs) Not terrorism. I I don't know. I've I've
0: met some tourists that, (laughs) oh, the way they dress, it it does seem like terrorism. I don't know. Right. Uh,
1: There's tourism. uh, There's also joint ventures. mm -hmm. um, And partially this is because religious religious buildings provide important tourist revenue. Mm-hmm. They can provide a sort of important opportunities for local governments. Um, in Shanghai, in one of the more sort of commercial areas of Shanghai, in the 1980s, uh, there there's a, a, was a Buddhist temple was given back to the Buddhist association, and they, they set about rebuilding it. But obviously, they didn't have the money to, to rebuild it. And so the local government approached them and said, well, we'll, we'll give you an uh, interest-free loan with the understanding that um, 80% of your admissions fees, uh, because you have to pay a a nominal fee to get into the Buddhist temple, anywhere from, I think, 2 to 15 yuan. So about 25 cents to maybe $2, Mm -hmm. depending on on the, uh, the day of the week. That eighty percent of admissions fees would go directly back to the local government. The second stipulation was that this this temple would also be sort of cross-listed as a as a sort of a tourist site, and has become a tremendous tourist attraction mm-hmm. in in the center of Shanghai. Um, it's made it to all. You see busloads of foreigners as well as domestic Chinese or domestic tourists as well visiting this this temple as well. So it's a sense of of somewhat prestige for the for the local government officials. They have this sort of crowning Buddhist jewel in the center of a very commercial district. The third stipulation of, of the agreement was that two of the outer walls of the temple would be carved out for commercial development, which means uh, these would have been sort of small worship halls, but mm-hmm. instead they have doors that lead out to the street, and one is a coffee shop, another one is a jewelry shop where you can buy very expensive Rolexes. Um, wow. Um, and so fancy Italian leather shoes, so the the walls of the temple have essentially been carved out for commercial commercial development Um, Uh and what's interesting is that the rents um, on these shops go to go to the temple And and so they were quite excited in sort of this this exchange. It's because this is a huge money-making industry for uh, the Buddhist temples. It's helping Mm -hmm. the restoration of not only their temple, but they can funnel the money to other Buddhist sites across the city, which may may not have the same type of opportunities. And this sort of intersection of commerce and tourism and religion, I saw this playing out um, among many other religious groups. So also... um, in one area, in one district of Shanghai, you have a very old mosque, and the same sort of story that their land was given back to them, and the local government encouraged them, um, didn't require them, but encouraged them to develop part of it for commercial um commercial enterprises and so i think there's a jeans west store which is the equivalent wow. of a chinese gap and a sporting goods store uh as well as uh, two two halal restaurants and the the great thing for <laughs> uh-huh. the the imam at, at this mosque explained to me is that they get to keep the revenues they wouldn't right. uh, be afford to uh, they, w- they couldn't afford the upkeep as well as their own salaries and so it's a big money maker um and their religious community is quite small and so they didn't need to expand their worship service or the halls uh, uh the halls to, to hold worship services, so it's it's a great situation for them and the local government. Um, it, it's in the sort of the, the the center of the city, so it's this old historic downtown which has been renovated, and so there's this crowning jewel of a beautiful mosque from the Tang Dynasty, as right. well as you can you know. Get a pair of sneakers on your way.
0: That's absolutely fascinating. So, from 1949, religion as opiate of the masses to you know 2009, uh, religion as the a revenue stream for the government. Absolutely. Um, and and for some of these churches as well, it's you know not quite the the Weberian Protestant ethic as Weber envisioned it, but nonetheless one of these uh, interesting interplays how religion not only is being a spiritual force in society, but has its externalities and spillover effects to really make other aspects of society much more vibrant and in, in ways that you would never expect.
1: Absolutely. And and just to, to add sort of one, one more story of this this sort of cash nexus between uh, religious groups and the state, um, some scholars in China are talking about uh, Christian bosses. There's also Buddhist bosses. Bosses, bosses. okay. So these mm-hmm. are... Usually ethnic Chinese who have made their fortune perhaps overseas, maybe mm-hmm. in Taiwan. Um, they're either Christians or Buddhists or Taoists, or, or and they've come back to the mainland with the in, with this sort of a business model of investing in China because mm-hmm. they see themselves as, as as very patriotic, but also at the same time spreading their own religious beliefs, whether that means, you know, Christianity or Islam or, or Buddhism or Taoism. Um, and so the, these Christian bosses I, I interviewed uh, some of them, and they have very interesting business models they're, first of all they 're not they 're not sheepish or they 're not trying to hide their religious beliefs whatsoever mm. um, they 're very open about it, and when they 're engaging in their negotiations with various local government officials who are trying to attract um, you know their millions sometimes billion dollar investments within within their city, mm-hmm. uh, local government officials have been uh, also quite creative. Um, one Christian boss. Uh, they have uh, factories. Uh, they make semiconductors, so p- parts of, of, of computers, probably in most most of our computers. They make parts of the chips. Right and. Um, he was quite open and honest about his, his Christian beliefs and mentioned mentioned this to various local governments across China. And as when they were deciding where to build their factories, uh, local government officials he explained to me dangled churches in front of them and said, "You build your factory, we will build you a church right next to your factory." Because wow. often factories have dormitories and eating halls next to them, and right. they said, "We'll throw in a church." Um, and in his four factories, which are located in various cities across China, there there are these magnificent churches, and they're not small. Uh, n- near the headquarters in Shanghai, it seats four thousand. Wow! And it's it would sort that's of rival yeah. it, it would rival any mega church um, yeah. e- in the U.S. And that's the main ch- main sort of worship hall, and then there's a smaller chapel next door. And I visited it, and it is it's packed on on Saturdays and Sundays. They have three services three services on Sundays. And 4,000 people each.
0: Absolutely fascinating. So, you know, economic change is driving religion as much as religion is driving economic change. Just absolutely fascinating. Now, as I understand it, you will be uh, heading out uh, back to China again to do some more research with... Pentecostal initiative from the Templeton Fund, is that correct? Right. Okay, well, we're going to have to check back with you when you come back from that research because you know, even though we're here at the end of our hour, I'm sure we could have went another hour or two to talk about this as well as your comparative research in Russia and highlighting the similarities between the two cases as well as some of the differences. So, um, Carrie, I want to thank you for being on uh, Research on Religion. For those of you who would like to comment on today's podcast, or to click some of the links that we may have available for you, don't forget our website is www.researchonreligion.org, and we look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you for listening to Research on Religion. To learn more about today's topic, participate in a discussion about what you've heard, or browse other podcasts, please visit our website at www.researchonreligion.org. And if you like what we're doing, please tell a friend. We'd appreciate the company. See you next week.